Welcome to the sixth conversation of the Sunday Book Club. This week, we're talking about Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman. Written in 2011 by a Jewish-American author, Dove Keepers is a historical fiction novel that dramatizes the events towards the end of the Roman-Jewish war. Narrated by women in war-torn conservative Judea, the book attempts at unlocking potentially overlooked perspectives of a society and its struggles. fiction and I think that there are a bunch of books that would have worked from the list that we kind of made but I don't really know that much about ancient Israel I don't really know that much about their customs um, I thought that this like it, it, it just seemed like a really interesting story um, also I like that it was character to me so, you know I think that we played with that a bit like especially in our first month we've had a bunch of books now that have been about specific characters um, but I thought this was like that felt much more like a memoir and then this felt kind of like because it has this magical realism it has all these other elements to it it felt like this fantasy world sort of but also the very like at the same time like a very real world yeah um so i like it sounded really promising no for sure i i even acknowledged while reading the book how little i know about contemporary jewish culture like Mm -hmm. we all kind of know the stereotypes that exist today or certain cultural things that exist um but like you don't really understand their historical relevances i feel like so this mm-hmm. was a great place to kind of get acquainted with that yeah also i mean like i think this is definitely something we'll get into a little bit more but you know so much of the book is about all of these customs that like are so restricting are so sexist in the way they're designed and it's just interesting to me because so much of it is, you know, like the whole thing where they're considered pure because they get their period and they're sent away to like sanitize themselves and all that jazz. Honestly, like when you look at culture today, we still have that remnant, like we still have a lot of those practices, like Indian women, for example, not being allowed to go into a temple, or specifically, let me say, Hindu women not being allowed to go into a temple, um, not being able to, like, you know, enter a kitchen if you're on your period. A lot of these, I think, maybe in our households, we don't see as much, but I think we're all aware that they are practices and they are beliefs that people have. Yeah, 100%. In fact, uh, there were several aspects already up until the halfway point that discuss taboo in a very accepted fashion because it's from the perspective of 70 CE. One that stood out for me was the thing about tattoos um, and how Yael felt some religious guilt when she was cutting her leg. Uh, So I went on to research why that is, like why in Jewish culture are people not allowed to alter their body physically or permanently. it's basically um, in Leviticus 19.28, it says, you shall not make gashes in your flesh for the dead or incise any marks on yourselves. So people with tattoos were considered impure or pagans. Why I find this even more interesting for the book club is that we're reading a book called The Tattooist at the end of the month. And in that, in Nazi Germany, um, they tattooed uh, the Jewish prisoners with their um, what's it called inmate number and that in contemporary Jewish society is like a big scar that's been left on their society so I find it really interesting that even 2000 years ago there was like some sort of tension with tattooing and altering your body then there was tension um, like 70 years ago during uh, World War Two, and because of that today there's like a really uh, 
layered i guess layered relationship jewish people have with tattoos so i just thought that would be interesting for people in book club to know that's actually so amazing i don't think i knew that no me neither I mean, it's like i had to research I, this yeah no 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 i mean like i i picked up definitely that tattoos was like a a big no no in their culture at that point but i love the connection you made to the tattooist like that is going to be i mean that's like Yeah, because it 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 establishes some kind of complex relationship they've had with this thing from the very start. How that's been twisted in modern times, and now it's like when people get tattoos who are Jewish, it's kind of like in a in a way they're like owning their freedom, is what I read as well. Yeah, I mean, even like if you look at it as a form of subjugation to make someone go through, like I mean, I don't, I, this is so filmy, but it reminds me of that moment in like the the Mangal Pandey story. Like you watch the film, uh, interval point, if I remember correctly, where he realizes that the the bullets that they have to bite off and when they load their gun, they have to bite off part of it, and that that used beef and pork, which was. Sort of, it's considered impure for both Hindus and Muslims. Yeah. Um, and so it was this huge, like, form of rev- like revolt that then happened. And it's actually it's such perverse subjugation, right? Because it's like you're using something that's very holy to people, mm-hmm. uh, and then you you abuse that that which they consider holy, and that it's is its own sort of weird perverse subjugation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, like, that's really interesting. That's going to be interesting to go into tattooist knowing that because it's its own form of like. I mean, not in it's not imprisonment, but it's just—it's um, absolutely I mean, inhumane. Yeah, no, but I mean, the whole book, right? Like, it it even starts with the temple um, being torn down and their like their holy temple being torn down, and I feel like so the book actually uses religion and belief and faith so interestingly because you know, on one hand, you have this like if you look at the essence of the book, like that shrine, uh, you know, like on one hand, they. The end of the world is near, and like everything they do must please God. But then on the other hand, you have the fact that you know they treat women as second-class citizens. They use they you know they're almost like capital, like something to be kept to be had. And so it's for it's for me, it's like you know if you if you believe you're entering the end of the world, um, and that everyone should find their like just end. To believe that women, like, to, for that belief, go hand in hand with the idea that women are your property. Like to me, that's such a contradiction of faith. But mm-hmm. at the same time, that's false. Like that is a description of their faith. Right. And then how much has changed? Like going from there, you know, like so many, so many faiths around the world still look at women as, as second class citizens. And I think that, I mean. When it's interesting that the book was written in what BC, right? And then, no, 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 um, C C E C E. So C, sorry. Yeah. But see, I mean, like that's freaking long ago. Very long ago. Look at us. Look at us in modern society. Of course, it's written. You know, it, it it's part of it's it's written as sort of um it's written in contemporary times. I definitely think we have that slant to it, and it is that way for us to connect back into it. But it also seems incredibly well researched, and oh, for absolutely. me, then. To have that, like, it just feels like you know where our beliefs come from. Like we have, I, honestly, like if you believe like the the Genesis of Christianity and stuff, like it it comes from the first fable, like the creation of mankind, that Eve is the reason man fell from heaven. Like you know, from the first bite of that apple, like women were always considered less than. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen this 
short series called Unorthodox but the book kind of like reminded me a lot about that show because it's a show again about very orthodox Jews who live in Brooklyn today and the women in their society are absolutely oppressed even today and i don't know a lot about jewish culture like i told you um and so that remi- it like connected me to that show immediately because there's not a lot of references i have isha did you get through the whole book um no actually i got through uh, 110ish pages the goal was to get through halfway um but uh i feel like the first thing that stood out to me was there was a lot of uh i i kind of got lost i was at first enjoying the descriptive nature but then i got lost in the metaphors and the uh i felt like the language was very hyperbolic for me to absolutely reminding myself that the point of this book is to record oral history uh at a time of like a war from the voices of like these four or five women um i felt like that kept getting lost in translation i had to keep going back to that and reminding myself i was getting carried away with all of these um i don't know like scorpions and goats and i feel like it got a little bit much but um look how lovely that like, cuz i absolutely agree with you the book is completely chock full of hyperbole and also intense imagery to the point where you feel like you can see the things that they're talking about right um it's very visual but then there were these lines which came quite often actually especially at the end of the parts that that kind of left me with goosebumps or like a little bit like out of breath almost because they are so beautiful and i'll read one of them now um when revka says the birds passed us their flight faster than we would ever be and that told us something as well if we had paid attention we would have understood there are some things in the world you cannot outrun and that for me like left me with so many chills <laughs> and there's so many lines like that in the book so i felt like the theatrics really add to the flavor of uh the book in fact uh, of course i think it supports i think the visuals of understanding the geography and i think you guys were earlier saying i agree i know nothing about jewish uh, culture i have a jewish aunt but i mean that's as much as i you know know yeah. uh, with her for a few years and um like i, I know just the basics like these are the festivals these are the few customs and then i knew a little bit about tattoos and stuff but absolutely nothing about like the nuances of geography and local culture witchcraft um magic which is really um, surprising or like fascinating to me because today in present uh, global politics that whole region is so like it's always been at the center of world politics and discussion right and we still know like not much about it which i find really interesting it's just not spoken about too much maybe i feel like it's a very systemic um overshadowing Mm-hmm. I feel like that about cultures and communities in India as well but that's just I feel like that's my it could be me projecting a lot of uh, how I see why so for example the caste system in India I feel like I very of late found out that um a lot of tribal communities that are natives uh Chhattisgarh for example they're not even a part of the 
classification in the caste system so i feel like a lot is deliberately left out and a lot is deliberately delayed and a lot of it is like deliberately get out of your uh psyche mm-hmm. i'm not really sure what the systemic goal is but i know that this is deliberate um right up until this point in the book have you guys been able to identify like cuz i know what you said isha like the book is so descriptive that you almost can't keep up with what's actually going on so are you able to come to terms with what's been happening in the book like uh, behind the narrative like just incidents wise like what's going on there me personally i would say i i have kept up with like local incidents for example but if there's like an overarching um sort of time together of narratives that hasn't happened with me yet i still feel a little lost but that might also be because i'm like 100 pages in where in the book have you like what what's happening in the book right now where you are uh there's a ghost who just entered and uh they were trying to flee to jerusalem right this is was, it the ghost of sia um like a female ghost yeah it is a female ghost i forget the name but this yeah, they're talking sorry no sorry i was going to say if, if you're in the yael chapter and you hit the ghost then that is probably sia yeah. Um, yes, I was. Has the family passed away? Like the the one that they were traveling with? Yes. Ah, yes. That's the ghost of Sia, uh, the wife, the dead wife of the man Yael was sleeping with. But anyway, the I guess what I was trying to get at was is that these people used to live in Jerusalem in this walled city, very protected, and because the Romans sacked Jerusalem, they all had to flee, and then. uh yael even says that at some point there were only three ways to go one was the road to rome one was the road to the sea and yeah. one lead le- uh, led to the desert and they obviously picked the desert even though it was like in a way the worst choice but the other ones meant death so yeah that that that's what i was getting at is like the romans have sacked jerusalem these people are like nomads right now and they're looking for a place to i guess like a shelter with other jewish people as well which they okay never mind i'm not going to say much <laughs> yeah it's like but, i mean like i i i know like the book is obviously set in israel um and it is about the jewish faith but for me it really becomes a story of sort of any state um any family uh it's a story i think of what war does to people and what i think was so interesting is that you know in plot different characters like for me i know someone who you know maybe she hasn't had like the the best of upbringings but she still seems to be really entrenched in her faith um and so even when she does something that she considers to be unholy she is very aware of it mm-hmm. and it seems to be like this conscious decision after a point to say you know where where the laws of religion don't uh, we don't abide by those anymore like we're in a different place and for me that's kind of like the rules of war you know like at at some point it supersedes whereas for other people what i become something that commits them to their faith and then for some people it's why they lose their faith and for me that was really interesting because i think when we get to different chapters in this book you follow different characters and you meet some people who have committed themselves to their faith and then you meet some people who have lost their faith and you see how they got to where they are on that journey mm-hmm. so it becomes really interesting i think as you go also because of that 
fire that could not be quenched like you can like visualize this like blazing situation that is not dying you know so it's just a beautiful play on words as well absolutely and uh considering that that one place jerusalem has been the center of so many things like everything that we hear till now like it's there it's still there and so people still want to have it it's still one of those places where there is this uh, whole ideologies based just because you know just for the want of that place like and i didn't read much i don't have any insights into the story but yeah just that part was interesting yeah no worries thanks for sharing and i mean that's i feel like the power of this book is that even like from right from the start you get taken in by the language the imagery like it's it just kind of sucks you in so i'm quite sure you're going to end up finishing this book i'm hoping so as well i'm going on a vacation so i'm taking this and i'm going to also finish she would be king i read that perfect almost 80% so there's a little bit to go there perfect I felt that in this book the sour relationships that families have are because of certain deaths that have occurred in those families but it's also that death that is then uniting people or like severing them together and they'll never leave each other like for example the father and yael they are bound by this unhappiness but the key word there is bound and unhappiness like normally you think when people dislike each other that much they would not want to be near each other they don't want to travel together but they're still bound by the mother's death somehow similarly with revka and her son-in-law another death binds them too and it's this really sour feeling that they dwell on when they think about that when they come together because that's the only thing that they have in common left now but they still are kind of bonded by that so i find it really interesting this theme of death that is uniting some of these main characters in this book you know that takes me back to our discussion on grief as a thing with feathers actually mm-hmm. um when i think grief is such an encompassing emotion and something we all are so familiar with sadly that i think it it's something that when you share um it sort of brings you together because you feel like if you remember even in that book the father and the son sort of became a team um against everyone else the boys themselves were a team to like hold their dad together yeah um and i think that's the power of grief is that it's actually one of the most powerful emotions that we have like up there with like love and stuff because it it's it's an emotion that can be shared um it's an emotion that unites Mm-hmm. I think a lot of sorrow um or joy can be deeply personal or deeply tied to a moment but grief is something that seems to just stretch through time through place through people um and it 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 brings you together even if it's not in the most positive of ways the way it is with these characters were there any uh, things you wanted to talk about Isha like things that stood out to you um a few things or like so questions have, even uh, like you know doubts or whatever yeah um so when you were talking about the concept of bound together i had marked something uh which i was looking for i just found um 
she says this is on page 11 she says uh, it's at the end of the first paragraph that she thinks that she and her father are alike and then um i think just before that she was comparing herself with a scorpion i i felt like there was just so much desperation there was shame there was guilt there was admiration she's just said, spoken about um how the other girls in the schools um walk around with their fathers and she's not able to uh so she understands that the father's capable of love and i think she has some respect for that um because i think she also says that he loves and shows a lot of admiration and respect for the son but not for her and it just made me uh i don't know i think she she kind of fell in love with her father's potential um i didn't have as much of a positive take on that what do you guys think of that is that even a thought that occurred for you guys i'm not sure what i make of that relationship just yet honestly okay um halfway through the book he's definitely a man who has certain views on life he's like your typical uh uh stereotypical sort of father figure who is very orthodox i would say uh but he definitely loves his daughter because even when yeah. they need to leave jerusalem to leave for the desert he wakes her up he he goes that extra step to wake up the daughter and say like we need to go even if he says it in a very like whatever i don't care about you way he still takes that effort and like wakes her up similarly later in the book as you guys will read there's another incident where he goes out of his way to help her with something which seems like oh i'm only doing this because i have a stake in this but he definitely is just a reserved orthodox father figure who loves his daughter is is how i see it but i'm still waiting for that i don't know like the other shoe to drop kind of like the relationship still hasn't reached like any uh positive light yet i think and Where you guys are sorry continue uh yeah i think in fact maybe the father growing older is starting to get a little bit soft on her maybe but she as you'll see in the book is a very strong character so maybe at some point she makes peace with the fact that she won't really ever win her dad over is how i see it you know for me it goes back actually to the grief um i think that line that you read out first at first quote it's best sort of as they go on um he does he does kind of step up a bit especially you'll see that a bit in the revka chapter um but it's never it's never like this loving father daughter relationship it's more this big grudging sort of um like the, there's i don't think there's an absence of love i just think the love is so entangled in grief so there's this moment when all of them are in the cave um and she she says something to her father like you know would you because apparently he he considers her so impure by eat the food she's prepared um and it's because he needs it. so she sort of makes a comment about that and he's saying a prayer and she's wondering if he's warding off the evil of the fact that she's cooked the food and when he looks up she realizes that he's actually saying a prayer of mourning for her mother and that that is a burden that he carries and it's a burden that they share that the this loss of the mother through childbirth is this burden that they both seem to carry with them and so that's when she actually she ends that chapter i mean she ends that section with the line saying you know i realized i dishonored him mm-hmm. um and 
I think that's really powerful because I think she, I think at some point that comes from some awareness of the fact that it's not a complete lack of love. It's just that there's so much anguish, there's shame. There may even be some hatred mixed in there for the fact that, the, you know, the wife or mother was taken away. Um, and it's sort of this irrational sort of bent where you don't, it's not really her fault, but because it's so entangled with her life uh, starting that like there is some amount of irrational resentment there. So I think she is very aware of that. And that character for me is like, like Yael's character is a very, um, she, she, she sees a lot, like, you know, that she's a very observant character. She's a very perceptive character. Uh, and she's very aware of where she is, her role, how she fits into this world that she's living in. So like some of the other, like when you hit Aziza's chapter, she, you'll see she's a very different girl, same age, very different background, and so very different place in society. But Yael is that kind of girl that you think, oh, she's a good brought up girl. She understands her place is to walk last in line. She understands, like, she fits into that world. She fits into its rules. And actually her journey sort of begins when she goes into this desert and she realizes that she starts breaking these rules. Uh, and she realizes which of the rules really matter to her, how they tie into her life. And I think that's when it gets really interesting for her. And her identity evolves from that. I think, Malika, what you said first uh, about how there is love, but it's um, misplaced love. And I think it got clouded with grief. I think that encapsulates what I was trying to convey, that there is admiration, there is mutual, um, there's some connection there, but I think it's just misrepresented or they just don't know how to resolve that grief yet. Uh, at least yeah, until exactly. as far as I think it's just like a lack of communication and clarity yeah. between both parties on how they feel, sincerely feel. And the dad, of yeah. course, like is unable to come to terms with any of those emotions out loud is how yes. I feel. Um, they also feel very preoccupied with everything that's going on and rightly so. So I feel like emotions and resolving them kind of took a back seat, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Another thing, like, we can segue from what Malika said about Yael being the one who's feeding the father. She's the one keeping them alive in the desert. And we were just talking about how women in that time seemed like second-class citizens. The ones who were the followers, not the leaders. Uh, even to the point that the chapters of these books are not like Yael and Revka. The chapters' names are Assassin's Daughter, Baker's Wife. Like, even their identity is, like, linked to the man in their home, you know? But I really find it interesting from the characters' perspective of what they do, the things they say, what they're capable of doing, how much this book is driven by women. So it may seem that women are, like, a second rank in their society which is true but a lot of their uh, abilities are of like a first rank citizen uh, for example the 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 Yael uh, example that Malika gave us but also Shira later on you'll, you'll meet this other woman who is like kind of a witch and she kind of has the answers to 99% of people's problems even the guy with a sword can't do what she does, for example. 
So I, f- I don't know, what did you guys think about this tension between women being subservient, second class to them actually having a major role in society? I honestly thought that that was a very intentional uh, of the author Alice to do. I felt like um, the delivery of these four or five women's narratives was, I mean, I know this is fiction, but the life histories and lived histories of these women and their struggles and um, the fact that they were very present in the um, you know the war and the moving and the massacres and everything I I feel like it was almost intentional to say that they were treated the way that they were and yet they were still there and the fact that their voices have been muted is uh, is the point of the book like I feel like the whole reason this was um, researched and written the way that it was was it was conceived as um, a collection of only women's voices that were otherwise left out or that were otherwise you know just overshadowed by all these really masculine energies and gods and religions and um, the desert yeah to me this honestly seems like a more realistic picture the one she paints for us because yeah you're literally in fight or flight save your life mode and every single grain every hand helping hand is appreciated at that moment so whether you're a child a woman a man i don't think it really matters so like like for example when the, when they're in the desert and she is the one who's able to catch um chicken or uh, gather water for them to drink it doesn't matter that she did it you know and i think that's kind of how it probably went down back then because reading historical records apparently only a thousand jewish people made it to this fortress where they then kind of defended later on historically speaking i don't know what happens in the book um when you're like thousand people every single person counts so yeah even if you didn't have skills you'd start building skills you know even to the point that people used to take prisoners and they would be like okay be my slave i won't kill you because i need an extra set of hands you know yeah um there was one thing that reminded me of you guys' discussion um from the last book um i think you were saying something about the enslaved becoming the oppressors and there was just one tiny part in the book where she's talking about how she's just gotten her period and she used like a rag or like the hem of her tunic or something and then in within that paragraph she goes on to say that um we were becoming savages much like the barbarian tribes who lived in the desert um so i feel like that whole hierarchy of differences in i don't know like this whole classification of who comes first who's barbaric the definition of barbaric and like that seemed to happen for me in this novel as well. Mhm. This was page 40. I'm actually sad that Malika's mom Shilpa couldn't be here today because she brought up a really interesting point in the last book which ties in with this book as well where in the previous book there's three main characters like all of you know and then the book kind of goes into the three of them meeting in Monrovia in Liberia and one of the things we spoke about in the meeting was that 
the author of she would be king fleshed out those characters super well individually but when she brought them together we felt like we wanted a little bit more about their interpersonal relationships and we didn't get that with that book but with this one you can clearly see like different characters being defined but their relationship is really beautifully uh fleshed out is what i really enjoy about this book is that you have different characters that are meant to meet and have an interconnected life three strangers but that interconnectedness is completely explored like there are so many different narratives uh in their complex sort of relationships that i think the this book is so successful in doing that i also think i mean again i wish i had my kindle in front of me so i could refer to the actual line um but there's a line in the revka chapter when she sort of talks about um which is the second chapter of the book and she talks about how there are things that women do that men cannot even fathom and that it it like on one hand they look down on women and then on the other there are things that women must do for this for the survival of themselves of their kin um that for men would be inconceivable and i mean she it comes with a lot of context in her chapter but i also thought that was a really interesting line for the book as a whole because it's about women constantly stepping up and stepping into roles that are traditionally forbidden to them uh, like yael plays a hunter she defends people like she defends her clansmen she defends her family the people that she's traveling with she takes on certain elements of sort of sorcery or witchcraft which was heavily frowned on at that time you meet other characters you meet a character who sort of um not revenge but so someone someone wrongs her family in a very cruel way and so she commits murder as a response and how she believes she's like been burned and marked for her sin forever um you meet some another woman who's sort of a leader and she prays to a god as forbidden at that time like it was believed in the creator like there was that one male creator um and they didn't believe in the goddess and worship for the goddess had been outlawed and here you have a woman who in the middle of a desert in the middle of a of a famine of a drought uh, manages to summon rain and save all of them so basically she keeps taking all of these characters all of these women and she bestows them with so much power but at the same time so much fear because none of them can live their power uh, none of them can achieve it can realize the full extent of it they all have to hide it um and for me that was that was like that kind of the heart of the book is that in in each woman um whether it be even the power to bring life into this world uh there is this power but because we've been taught like in the book itself like how menstruation is thought to be impure how in society like i said as a very start of school menstruation is still thought to be impure um yet it is the source of life right so it for me it's so interesting because it's it acknowledges the fact that in every woman there is huge amounts of power but we are never allowed to realize it in fact we are shamed for it um we are made to feel like it is wrong like it is something we cannot discuss uh, or acknowledge and like that is the power of the book for me and that's what brings it so easily into modern times even though it was written about a world that existed long long ago i also really appreciate uh, not just like them fulfilling these like powerful larger than life sort of roles also the mundane ones i think the revka quote that you're talking about about women fulfilling certain roles in society that are just like overlooked you know 
and that brings us to contemporary times as well where say someone who's a uh, so someone who stays at home to care for the children or just like informal workers women workers in the sector who don't get paid for their informal work are not identified as like equal citizens in a society where like having a white collar job or like a like a qualification somehow is you're doing more with your life you know uh that seeps oh, yeah. into modern day life too you know it's like we haven't changed at all in that way but i mean you know what's so interesting to me is that reading the book there are certain times that i was like outraged where i was like how is how how are these women okay to live like this right like it just feels like now we've come so far but a lot of the times they're so scared they have to hide from us they don't know how to ask for things they feel like they must ask because it will never be given and then they don't know if they're even allowed to if they be punished for it and i mean like very plainly if i have to draw a parallel to my own life like maybe i don't have to ask for things that they needed back then maybe those are things that sort of progress from um in in these modern times but at the same time like like you know if for me still like in my industry if i if i'm if like a job negotiation or something so um if there's like a job negotiation that's happened like it's happening so often there are two people in my in my life that i would go to for advice on this like two two people that i work with one male one female and i have noticed consistently it is my male colleague who will tell me to ask for a higher price on every freelance project that i do and i'm always like no how can i even ask for that how can i even and his response was always like just ask and i realized that still something that is so grounded in me is this inability to ask because it's like what if i'm not worth it what if they won't give it to me what if they're like how could she even dream of asking for this kind of money right so i'm just like a lot of the things that i was reading and i was so outraged at it also made me think like if if someone read a book about us women in india today what would they be outraged at because so little has actually changed like we feel like a lot has come but actually the roots of a lot of the the stigma a lot of the burdens that we carry like feeling like women don't add enough to the workforce or that we can't ask for enough that all comes from a certain place and i actually for me it's so interesting because in a lot of ways it being set in ancient israel feels like taking it back and saying all of these all of these conceptions that we have about our worth um they come from way farther back than we even sort of sometimes recognize and from like even more perverse ways than sometimes we even recognize yeah generally speaking like our primal instincts and like the basis of who we are hasn't changed in many ways um and i was highly outraged by a lot of things that i was reading especially like the women's perspectives of themselves but then they would throw in like a kernel of like insight after that which i love so i will read to you guys a couple of lines from revka's chapter where um she talks about weapons and how women can't touch weapons and that really outraged me i was like how can you say that revka like you're a woman you know but she says any weapon touched by a woman even by accident must be cleansed with both prayer water or sorry with water and prayer so that her essence would not linger diverting the warrior who might use it next for even the faintest touch could bring lust to that man's heart perhaps that meant a woman who was well trained in arms would be the superior warrior her attention never wavering from her task and i was like dude that's that's Beautiful. what insight is yeah. you know and like i'm sure women felt like this at the time like they must have been outraged too that so if your logic is that men who uh, so if a woman touched a man's sword he might be like distracted by her lust that's lingering on it then why don't you just give it to me because i'm not uh lusting over a man who gave me the sword you know 
I love yeah. that logical deduction. But also, it is that that insight is gonna make the next chapter I think really interesting for you. Okay. The Aziza chapter. So actually, that's another thing is that I like how she sort of build one on top of the other, um, and how they all connect and how the worlds overlap. What you guys were saying, I just had a thought. Tell me what you guys think about how um, if is it? Do you think it's a possibility or that? women then and now both since most wars and political unrest even now is engineered by men um that women might find wars and uh political unrest like their feelings about these things might be ambivalent why i i kind of thought of that was because in in the book specifically women so far have been portrayed to live on the side of the men who are engaged in all of this um really brutal um almost asymmetrical uh, holy war and they're doing all this messy mundane like Amy was saying like they're doing all this getting summoned for food and they're doing this mundane daily life um you know household chores and stuff but like the men are seemingly involved in like super ideological and religious and almost um very consuming fanatic religious um obsessions so i feel like they're supporting these men who are engineering their own death and their community's death in a way um um yeah i don't know i feel like what i was trying to say in a nutshell is that uh i think in general women do this whole messy side um business to support this other world that's going on on the other side which they're not directly um partaking in other than supporting you know the everyday mundane and the birthing of the men who do this other worldly business does that make sense yeah no i understand what you mean like they are part of the like let's say there's let's say you don't agree with what these men are doing the women are like supporting what they are doing right like they they yeah. they're as much a part of like the bloodshed as let's say the warriors in this case um right Yeah no so so you talking about religion you were talking about uh, war which brings power and traditionally and even today like all these roles have been thought of as to be filled by men and right. obviously it's changing now but back then though it was like 100% the men are the ones who control things Frankly. so whether it's religion whether it's through war this idea of having control through ideology is because they want to keep power you know and i think they create narratives whether through religion or through like um oration or whatever like you create narratives that you make your people believe so whether you're jewish whether you're roman whether you're from wherever you start to believe that narrative because you have nothing else to believe in you know what i mean because everyone needs something to hold on to and the power of of masses is like definitely it can it can steer you in a certain direction so when you're part of a community like you will put all of your efforts into that community 
reaching its version of prosperity so of course the women are going to help they helped in uh, yeah those times helping the wars they helped today even i mean it's all towards one larger effort so whoever sets the narrative all the followers will follow them whether it's a man or a woman you know what what i would kind of add to that is i think that um it it's sort of like if you see wars like i think that they're often waged with an agenda right like it's 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 never that it's it's never as pure or as jingoistic as they want like it's always over resource or over land control or whatever like if you even look at the war in this book like it was over control for the for for jerusalem um and so those sort of bends or uh, those agendas are always set by whoever's in charge and a lot of the times we see that those kind of roles tend to be in the hands of men so i think that that is one of the one of the reasons why that sort of happens right is that you you go into war i mean like as as basic as if you look at like any sort of political science theory why did the 2001 invasion happen right it was like the the invasion of iraq happened because of and it's connected very closely to the to the bill clinton impeachment trial monica lewinsky sort of um scandal that it updated so it's like as soon as they faced this on a domestic front they launched this war in the name of their country and their country's ideals and then ended up entangled there for years like this is a big theory that's existed for a while i mean if you look at accounts of history um what's his name Anthony is believed to have launched the war um for Cleopatra because she said that she wanted and that's something the book actually also sort of refers to. Um and so I'm just saying like the number of the number of times you see war as a tool in the hands of men is just very sad. Um but also I think women have been persecuted for so many things over so many years that the investment into a large war feels secondary sometimes to what the battles you fight on a home front uh and that's kind of what we see these characters also like there is the war looming um and it does impact all the men like if you see the way that when they sort of get to this fortress the way that all the men are sort of described through the book is that they're always ready for war or they're practicing together in in the um i don't know dude what is it like the garrison that's what they call it right so it's like that's the whole narrative that entire time for the men the women have like 80000 problems that they're dealing with the whole time they're there at the fortress someone's trying to steal someone's kid someone's having a kid and this is like a huge no no because they're unmarried um someone has two grandkids and a son-in-law who's decided war is his only sort of mission and has left his two children to the grandmother to take care of so you kind of see how this these men and actually there's a there's a wonderful line where it says for men and it's describing shira's son um they run off into battle unheeding the 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 danger that it lies because they are in search of glory because also that is the masculine burden right this idea that we always put physical prowess and glory in on in a battlefield it's it's this it's this um burden that they have to then carry uh men also carry so it's like it's 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 not to say i mean this idea of now what we would sort of refer to as toxic masculinity it exists even there in the book she doesn't go so much into it but war was the one thing they were taught to believe in the men at that time and the women are dealing with 80000 problems on their home front it's funny that you say toxic masculinity because a lot of times when you see war pictures and recounts of war time a lot of the young ones especially are just shit scared to even go but they don't have a choice you've been conscripted let's go you know so and also they sell the idea of glory 
exactly but i i'm i'm fairly certain that uh, maybe we'll see in the book as well that through the book this idea of wartime glory gets even more accentuated because it's in the name of religion you know it's not just yes your country or something it's like this is for judea you know it's your faith yeah and actually i mean like again i'm sort of tantalizing this chapter but the aziza chapter is so so well written exactly for that like it i think a lot of the ideas that we're discussing um sort of got focused in on the aziza chapter because she is a character i think that even in the first two chapters we don't really get to explore that much we're not really with her that much uh and so the third chapter when we go completely to her back story how she ended up at the fortress um it's it's really interesting i'm only halfway through that chapter she's a very different character uh and she has a very different sort of history so i will tackle these ideas we're discussing i think isha's like at the precipice of reaching the fortress but um uh, once you reach there i would highly recommend googling that fortress because don't do it now because like see the read the description and then see it um and it's a place you can still visit today you know so i don't know it's just like it's the way she describes that fortress is like wow like you really captured it because when i saw the picture i was like that is what i had in my head <laughs> and it freaking exists <laughs> But uh, Malika, did you see pictures of uh, the fortress Masada? I'm literally pulling it up right now. That is so fascinating. Image. I was like, wow, this place is so awesome. Sorry, I was just googling. Um, I'm I'm like trying to look for that image of the staircase that led up because there's so much not staircase but that serpent path because there's just so much description about it that I I'm so curious what it. I mean, I'm sure it's changed now, but I'm so curious what that would be. But it's absolutely. I've been seeing pictures of it, and it's. I mean, like it's so vividly written. Like I think, and I was telling Amy this earlier. Like I don't know if it's just because it was hot as balls in Bombay right now, but like I could feel the heat of the summer and of the desert, the way that she's sort of written it. And then I just looked at the pictures of the palace, and it is as stark and barren as sort of anything that I would have imagined. Exactly. No. What a honestly, what a great setting. What a great story. to tell like i love the magnitude of what has been conveyed through this book that's true it's it's history of an area that i'm not very familiar with at a scale which is quite immense but also very personal and you start to understand through these very accounts like why those areas are so highly contentious even today you know like the history is like layers upon layers upon layers yeah. It did also make me really want to eat that food. The way they've described food in this, I was like, "Why am I on this diet? I just want bread." Which is hilarious because they're pretty much starving like half the time. So <laughs> that's true. Maybe it's not how grateful they are for food. Exactly. Sister, um, but also I think that this is a good place to sort of drop off for our discussion for next week. Um, I think we've. Talked a lot about the first few chapters, and I'm now really excited, and I hope I haven't overplayed chapter three. Yeah, no, me too. I'm really excited to go into the second half now because I feel like we fleshed it out so much, we've discussed so much. Like I'm buzzing with like wanting to read more and see where it goes. Yeah, same. I I haven't got my book yet for next week, so I sure have a lot of uh, you know. The good news, uh, the good news for human acts is that it's fairly short. So that might be like a one day, two day speed read if you're that kind of person. Yeah, and then more time to finish yeah. this because I think 
I don't know exactly how we're gonna do. We'll figure it out. Uh, maybe we'll start with human acts, and then sort of everyone who wants to stay on for dove keepers can do that. Um, or we might flip it. Let's see. Whatever works best for everyone. There, there was one thing, like one quote that I actually took a picture of, and I want to leave you guys with that from Revka's chapter, if that's okay. Um, because it was absolutely earth-shattering for me. Um, okay, so I'll just say it. Just as creation began with words, so too did our world come apart in silence. None among us spoke. The boys because they couldn't. My son-in-law because he wouldn't. Myself because there were no words worth speaking aloud. The world was broken, and there was only one road that remained, splayed open before us as if made of bones. So that is in spine chilling. I don't know what is. That's actually, you know, you remind me at the end of the chapter for Revka, she talks about another line where she says words were God's first creation, but sometimes she thinks silence is more powerful. So what a beautiful way to end. Um, I'm really excited to do next week's discussion. I think Amy and I actually discussed this, and sorry to trump your last thing to end on, but this was something that I just thought of. Um, we were discussing it, and I just told her that. One of the things that I'm really grateful for, um, because of these Sunday meetings, is that every week I, that I sort of have a goal, um, and that I have something that I like, sort of intend to do, like finish a book and show up for the meeting. And I just feel like it gives me some sort of structure through the week. So I'm very grateful to everyone who showed up today um, and who's been showing up throughout, because I honestly feel like coming here to this call like definitely gives me something to look forward to for the week. Anyway, good. Okay, bye folks. See you next time. Thank you so much. Have a great week.